Turn with me to Psalm 51. I uh, get a little bit weary of hearing Christian success stories. Uh, the uh, people that I see on television, the Christians that I read about in Christian magazines remind me more of Homer's heroes than uh, real people. Zimmerson said, uh, every hero in the end gets to be a bore. What I'm looking for is more stories of failures like me. The, uh, the Bible is full of them, you know. Uh, Moses had a problem with his temper. Uh, Noah got drunk. Abraham told lies. Uh, Gideon copped out. Peter was uh, inconsistent. Paul was sometimes inconsiderate. Uh, Thomas doubted. Martha pouted. <laughs> it's just good to know that uh, they're made of the same sort of shameful stuff uh, as I am. And of them all, the one who is most encouraging to me is King David, not because I'm his uh, namesake, but uh, because I can identify so closely with him. And he's the author of the psalm we want to look at this morning, Psalm 51. David, as you know, was the sweet singer of Israel. Uh, he was a prophet, an inspired prophet. He was an able king. He was a very uh, noble figure, uh, a good man, we would say. And yet late in his life, he, he totally morally collapsed. You know the story. His king went off to, uh, to the country of Ammon to fight wars in the spring of the year. Kings were supposed to go out with their armies and, and lead them into battle. David stayed home. As Isaac Watts says, Satan always thinks up mischief for idle hands to do. And uh, David certainly uh, found some mischief for him to do during that time. He was walking on the, the top of his house on the rooftop one night, as you know, and he spied uh, Uriah's pretty little wife, Bathsheba, one thing led to another, and before long they discovered she was pregnant. David, to cover up his adulterous affair, arranged to have Uriah killed, murdered. Uriah was one of his best friends. He had accompanied David during the time when he was uh, fleeing from King Saul, one of, one of his mighty men. He had uh, Uriah killed. He lied to cover that up. He married the young lady, thinking that he had put a legal and final end to the affair, but it was a, a fool's dream, as you know. Nathan the prophet, after about a year, came to David with a, uh, a made-up story. He said that as he was traveling through the countryside, he happened upon uh, a situation that he thought uh, required David's judgment. He had seen two men, one a very wealthy man with vast herds and flocks, another a very poor man who had only one... <coughs> A uh, ewe lamb, a pet, actually, that he took care of. And uh, the wealthy man took uh, the one little lamb, the pet lamb that belonged to this man, and served it up as dinner to a traveling stranger. David uh, stopped him at that point, was absolutely outraged. He said, the man deserves to die. David was a little carried away. Stealing sheep uh, was not a capital offense in in Israel. 
But uh, nevertheless, that was his feeling. He was so outraged at what this man had, had done. Nathan looked at David, took his life in his own hands because David was the king, and he said, David, you're the man. And as you know, David uh, just unraveled, put his face in his hands, began to weep, and he said, Nathan, I have sinned. And it's out of that set of circumstances that David wrote some of his most powerful and and poignant psalms. We know that uh, we think that Psalm 32 came from this period. We're not sure, but it may well have arisen out of uh, these circumstances. Psalm 38 may have. And Psalm 51 almost certainly did. The title to the psalm tells us that... uh, This is a psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. These titles, though they're not part of the inspired text, are very, very old. They go back to the third century before Christ and probably uh, preserve traditions that are true. And so it's uh, generally believed that uh, this psalm was written on that particular occasion. The uh, title of the psalm is very interesting. The text actually reads that when the prophet Nathan came to him after he came to Bathsheba. There's a cause and effect relationship set up. David went to Bathsheba. Nathan went to David. It's as though God is saying that he's going to take care of his uh, his man. He's not going to let him get away with an action that can destroy him and destroy the nation. He loved David too much. And so David's action is met by a reaction on the part of God. He sends the prophet to announce his sin. David recognized it, confessed his sin, and this psalm came out of that act of, of contrition. That's a prayer. Uh, almost all the psalms are. The Hebrew word for the psalms, tefillin, means prayers. And these are mostly prayers of worship. There are three stanzas to the prayer. The first stanza, verses 1 through 6, contains a prayer of confession and contrition. The next stanza, verses 7 through 12, Uh, is a prayer for forgiveness and cleansing. The last section of the psalm from verse 13 on is a plea for restoration both to service and usefulness in the kingdom, within the kingdom of God, and a plea for restored fellowship with God himself. Now let's, uh, let's look at the psalm. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. David had no mercy whatever on Uriah, but he pleads for mercy before God. He asks that his transgressions would be blotted out, literally wiped off, expunged. In those days, errors were uh, were taken care of on these leather parchment rolls by taking a sponge and wiping off the, the erroneous uh, line or word. And that's what David is asking for. Eradicate, wipe off, take away forever my transgression. Now he pleads on the basis of two characteristics that he knows to be true of God. His unfailing love and his great compassion. Now, the word that's translated here, unfailing love, is a word that we've talked about before. It's a word that has to do with loyalty to God's word, his covenant. The term occurs uh, throughout the ancient world in terms of legal contracts. When people made a legal contract, they swore chesed is the word. They swore loyalty 
to one another. That's the word that's found here. David is thinking of the promise that God made to David. It's recorded for us back in 2 Samuel 7. When he told David, I am your father, I'll always be a father to you, and you'll be my son. And, and when you get out of line, they may have to discipline you as a father disciplines his son, discipline you with a, a rod of, with a rod of men, as he puts it. But I will never, ever take my love away from you. Uh, Paul's words in, in, in 2 Timothy are an echo of this. Though we abide faithless, David says, God abides faithless. Now, that's what David is talking about. That's what assures him. God's mercy is not based on some whim, some capricious thought that God has, that here's someone worthy of mercy. It's based upon his word once we become his child and we belong to him. He must be true to his word. He cannot go back on it. As uh, Paul puts it in his letter to Titus, he is the God who cannot lie. So he bases this plea of mercy first upon God's uh, loyalty. To his word. And then secondly, upon God's compassion. It's a visceral word. It's this word comes from the root for for the womb. It's descriptive of mother love, the kind of warm affection and compassion that mothers have for their children. So on these two bases, upon God's word and his warm affection, David pleads for mercy. Wash away all my iniquity, he says. The, the word wash, the verb wash is a launderer's term means to bleach out, to eradicate and what seems to be an ineradicable stain. You, know, you see all these TV ads, you know, where the child comes in all grungy and dirty and mother takes the shirt and she washes it in brand A and it comes out with the stain still on the front and then she washes it in brand B and it's squeaky clean and the stain has been removed from the fabric. That's what David is asking for. Launder me like that. Take the stain out of the wolf and the warp of the fabric of my soul. He realized that he was defiled and stained uh, by his sin. Wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I have been a sinner from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desired truth in the inner parts. You taught me wisdom in the inmost place. Now, uh, as I said, this is a prayer for, uh, of confession. And there are some elements of contrition that we ought to take seriously here. The first is that David acknowledges his sin. You'll notice the recurrence of the possessive pronoun, my, my transgression, my iniquity, my sin, my transgression, down in verse 3. He doesn't blame Bathsheba, though she was equally to be blamed. He doesn't blame his circumstances. He doesn't blame his environment. He doesn't blame the noisy children. He doesn't blame his parents. He shoulders the responsibility. He takes the rap. He admits that he's sinful. That's one of our basic problems. That's one of my big problems. I don't like to take the rap. I don't like to admit that I'm the one who sinned. I, I want to blame my family or I want to blame some honorary parishioner or something else that 
someone else that makes me act the way I do. But David faces his sin squarely. He says, it's my sin. I did it. He can't blame anyone else. Can't blame bad genes. Doesn't call it mere sickness. It is sin. Secondly, he calls sin what God calls it. He calls it by name, which is what confession is. In the New Testament, the word confession means basically to say the same thing. To agree with God, to speak along with him about the nature of sin. He virtually exhausts the Hebrew vocabulary of sin words in this passage. The word for transgression in verse 1 means rebellion. David says, I'm a rebel against your law. I'm wayward. Uh, The word for iniquity in verse 2 means a twist or an inclination. There's a proclivity. I see it in me toward, toward sin. Cleanse me from my sin, he says, which is the general word for sin in the Old Testament. It means to miss the mark, just as the uh, uh, New Testament word for sin uh, implies. Uh, in the book of Second Samuel, First Samuel, there's a story of a number of uh, uh, slingers from the tribe of Benjamin who could sling a stone at a, at a hairbreadth, the book says, and not sin, that's this word, not miss the mark. So he piles up. From his vocabulary of words for sin, uh, synonyms that that suggest that he knows what what sin is. He uses the correct terms. He doesn't try to evade responsibility for it. Sin is sin. He calls it what God calls it. And then third, he acknowledges that it's that his sin is sin against God, because all sin ultimately is against Him. Verse four: Against you, you only have I sinned. And done what is evil in your sight. He had sinned against Bathsheba. He ruined her reputation. He destroyed her marriage. He, he was responsible for the heartbreak that she felt because of the loss of, of her child. He sinned against Uriah. He sinned against the child, the infant who died shortly after he was born. He, uh, he sinned against the nation. But ultimately, David realized he'd sinned against God. God's great heart of love for David had been, had been torn. God was heartbroken over David's sin. And he sees that that's, that's what he has done. Sin is, is not a small thing. It's a very serious thing. It, it breaks the heart of God. And then fourth, he recognizes that his sin is inexcusable. Uh, he says in verse uh, 4, midway through verse 4, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you, when you judge. No way he could exonerate himself or excuse himself. He was, it was right of God to judge him. I heard a story once, I think I've told it here before, about the, the Scottish Presbyterian church that was racked by dissension and people were standing in, in the service in a congregational meeting and shouting at one another, losing their temper. And one man stood up and, and uh uh, shouted at the moderator, I demand my rights. And this old uh, Scott sitting in the back of the auditorium stood up and said, Ye rights. It's ye rights you want, is it? If you had ye rights, he said, you'd be in hell. Uh, David recognizes that God rightfully could judge him. And then, uh, fifthly, he he recognizes that he has he has been sinful from his birth, that he is inherently a sinner. It's inbred into him. It's not uh, merely that he is a sinner in his actions. He's a sinner in his heart. He came into the world that way. 
Surely, he says, I've been a sinner from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Do, do, you, do you read what he's saying? He's not merely saying that he came into the world a sinner, but he was a sinner from the moment of conception. He takes it back to the point of his conception and, and points out that he's a sinner. As a matter of fact, verse 6 is not referring to David's body. When David writes that God desired truth in the inner parts, he taught him wisdom in the inmost place, he's not talking about God teaching him wisdom in the inner man. He's rather talking about what God taught him while he was still in his mother's womb. The words that are translated here, inner parts and inmost place, are both used metaphorically for the womb, or the closed-up place, the dark, concealed, hidden place. And the verb tenses are all past here. You desired, you taught. He's not talking about what God had taught him after birth. He's talking about what he knew while, while yet an infant. This, by the way, is another one of those very strong, incidental, but very strong arguments in Scripture for preserving the life of unborn children because David very clearly states that he possessed the image of God when he was still in his mother's womb. He was a moral being. He came out of the womb knowing the difference between right and wrong. Very interesting. I saw an article in Time magazine some time ago about uh, Harvard psychologist Jerome uh, Kagan who's written a book called The Nature of the Child. He establishes what he believes is a is a bad trend in our culture to overrate environment in the development of children. He wrote, our culture is doing something very dangerous by saying that morality is learned. That if a 15-year-old kid mugs an old lady, he probably never learned a conscience. I think that all children, providing they have an intact nervous system, know before they're three that hurting another is wrong. We don't have to build it in. All we have to do is arrange the environment so they don't lose it. That's not exactly the doctrine of original sin, but it's very close to what David is saying here, that from the time he was in the womb, he was a moral being. And when he came out of the womb, he was already sinful. He already knew the difference between right and wrong. Theologians use a lot of uh, big words to describe this concept. It's found all through Scripture. They talk about original sin, by which they mean that we're sinful in our origins. They talk about total depravity, which doesn't mean that we can't do anything good. They simply mean that, we, that, that our depravity, our sinfulness, touches every aspect of our being, every action we take, every attitude we have is tinged in some way by sin. If sin were blue, we'd be some shade of blue all over. That's the point when they, when they describe us as totally depraved. And that's David's point of view. He's not only a sinner in his actions, but he was born that way. And there's no guarantee that he won't do the same thing he did before the very afternoon that he prayed this prayer. He knows what he is like. Now that's where David begins. And that's where we have to begin. By acknowledging the fact that we are sinful beings. We cannot justify our sin. We can't rename it. We're sinful. In our hearts, in our actions, we're sinful. I, I, I read a, uh, an account recently of the 
conversion of Alexander Solzhenitsyn, he was led to Christ by a Jewish doctor who was in the same gulag with him. Solzhenitsyn had intestinal cancer. He was dying. And Cornfield operated and saved his life. He also later saved his soul because uh, Cornfield was a Christian. And he would often talk to this bright young man. He described, Solzhenitsyn described himself as a melon-headed child with a very innocent, puzzled look on his face all of the time. And Cornfield really loved him and uh, would sit and talk to him. And one afternoon when he was recovering from surgery, as Solzhenitsyn puts it, as the Cornfield's words cut through the, the medication and, and the pain, and he said some things that Solzhenitsyn couldn't forget. He, record, he recorded them in uh, Gulag Archipelago. Cornfield said, on the whole, you know, he, he said, I have become convinced that there is no punishment that comes to us in this life on earth which is undeserved. Superficially, it can have nothing to do with what we're guilty of in actual fact. Both of these men were in prison for political crimes that they had never committed. And, and they felt it was unjustified. But Cornfield realized that he was suffering because of sin. Superficially, it says, the judgment can have nothing to do with what we're guilty of in actual fact. But if you go over your life with a fine-toothed comb, and ponder it deeply, you will always be able to hunt down that transgression of yours for which you are now receiving the blow. And later Solzhenitsyn wrote, and so it was, as I lay there on rotting prison straw that I sensed within myself the first stirrings of good, gradually it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between parties, but right through every human heart through every human heart, through my heart. You see, that's the place to which we have to come. We have to face the fact that we're sinful. There can be no cleansing unless there's a recognition of our need. God can do anything for us. He will do everything for us if we come to that point. And that's what David is. That's what he's doing. He's, 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 this is an honest prayer, confession, and contrition. He's facing his sin. And he's asking God to deal with it. In the verses that follow, verses 7 through 12, he prays for cleansing. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Hyssop was a sponge-like plant with which the blood of the sacrifices in the Old Testament were applied. If you stop and think about this verse, it's an amazing preview of the death of God. You see... Uh, David recognizes that he cannot save himself. And later he will say, sacrifice itself can never save me. Only God could save him. He describes God as the God who saves. And he recognizes in some way, because he was a prophet, that this would involve the death of God himself. That God himself must apply the blood of the sacrifice. Uh, we, we have rendered the sacrifices of the Old Testament uh, uh, too hygienic. The, if you had been there and watched the sacrifices and you had stood downwind from the altar, you would appreciate what an awful thing it was to have to sacrifice hundreds of thousands of animals 
the blood would soak down into the ground, and in that warm environment, uh, there would be a powerful stench around the temple, and there would be flies. There'd be no way to avoid it. And uh, people have described the sacrifices of Israel as a slaughterhouse religion. And we say, why? Well, because God wanted to get across to us that sin is a terrible, terrible thing. It involves the giving up of a life. And ultimately, it involved the life of God. You see? David recognizes that. That God would have to dip the hyssop into his own blood and apply it to David's life. Cleanse me with hyssop. And I'll be clean. No other sacrifice would do. No other cleansing would avail. Wash me. There's our launderer's term again. Bleach me. And I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Say something to me, he says. Confirm the fact of my cleansing and forgiveness. Let the bones you have crushed dance. Literally, uh, According to verse 32, when David failed to confess his sin, he tried to cover it over. He became physically ill. He was very sick. He felt terrible. Now he asked that God would restore his health. Hide your face from my sins and blot out. There's our word again. Wipe away all my iniquity. My mind keeps going back to the past. He says, I keep reminiscing about my failures. Blot that out. Remove that from my memory. Create in me, a pure heart, O oh God. The word for create here is the word that's used for creation in the book of Genesis. And it, it basically has to do with something that only God can do. It's not creating something out of nothing. That's not the idea of the word. It actually means do, creating something that only God can create. Only God can give you a new heart, can create your heart, can eradicate the old one and give you a new one. That's what conversion is. That's what the new birth is. Jeremiah puts it. God would take the heart of stone out of men and put in it a heart of, heart of flesh. Renew a steadfast spirit within me, one that's loyal, firm, steady. Do not cast me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. David had seen the Holy Spirit taken from Saul, and he saw the, the insanity of that king had followed. He did not want that to happen to him. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit, a spirit that is freed up, is the idea, a spirit liberated from the domination of sin. I don't know how many people I've had come into my office and sit down and say, I have this terrible thing I'm doing and I cannot stop doing it. But you can. You can. If we sin, it's because we choose to sin. By God's grace, if we if we choose to not sin, he will begin to give us power over the sins and habits that dominate us. It's not an immediate thing, but it's certain and sure. And that's what David prays for. Grant to me a spirit that's free from sin's dominion, as Paul puts it in Romans 6. Sin shall not have dominion over you. That's a promise. It's either true or it's a lie. And it's not a lie because we're dealing with the God who cannot lie. And so David can pray legitimately as we can pray, grant me a spirit that's free from sin's dominion. Then, and now in the final section, the final stanza of the psalm, he moves into a plea for restoration. To renewed usefulness, effectiveness in, in, within the kingdom of God and renewed worship with God. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. And sinners will turn back to
to you. Same word that he uses in verse 12 is translated restore. Sinners will be restored. Transgressors will be taught your ways. I hope you realize that sin does not disqualify you from ministry. Sin that is that we do not judge and put away, sin unrepented of, disqualifies us. But sin repented of, sin confessed, does not disqualify you. There's no sin that you could sin. There's no sin you could even conceive of sinning that will put you outside God's reach. You may have an abortion in in your past. That doesn't disqualify you. If you've repented over that sin, if you're truly contrite, you've turned away from it, that doesn't disqualify you. You may have an adulterous affair. You may have a divorce for which you were responsible. Or there may be some other thing that you've done to someone else and brought about great ruin and, and wreckage in their life. That does not disqualify you. The only thing that disqualifies us is sin that we will not face and put away. As a matter of fact, and this is not an incentive to go out and sin, please don't read it that way, I'm convinced that sin, properly handled, tenderizes us, makes us understanding and, uh, and loving toward people that have sinned. That's what David means when he says, then I'll teach transgressors your ways. See, before David confessed his sin and understood God, God's ways, he was harsh. The man deserves to die, he said, which is usually the way we think about people who sin in ways that we don't sin. But when we see that we're sinners in deed and in thought and, and in, in our hearts and we repent of that sin, it makes us so much more understanding and, and tender toward people around us. And we, we can teach them God's ways, his ways of compassion, God's understanding heart, his mercy, his loyalty to his word. So please don't think because of some sin in your past that you are disqualified to serve. If you've faced that sin and confessed it and done everything that you can to rectify the wrong that you've done and you've received God's forgiveness for it, you can be useful. You can be influential. God can use you. Now, the second thing I note about this, uh, about David's restoration, is that there's a, a plea here for a restored worship, a restored intimacy with God. Verse 14, save me from blood guilt, O God. Uh, David was a murderer. And the, 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 uh, the punishment for murder in the Old Testament was death. It was a capital offense, and David knew it. And so he, he prays, save me from, from blood guilt, O oh God, the agony of, of his murder, and the memories of his murder of Uriah wouldn't uh, stayed with him. Save me from blood guilt, O oh God, the, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O oh Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your, your praise. Sin repented of draws us to God. doesn't put God off. See, he goes on to say, You don't delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You don't take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God or godly sacrifices 
or a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. Our sin does not put God off when we repent of it. He doesn't despise us. And as a matter of fact, sin repented of can, can result in a relationship even more intimate than the one that you had before. Our brokenness draws us to God. And when we draw near to him, he draws near to us. God doesn't want your service. He doesn't want you to get busy serving. We try to assuage a guilty conscience by witnessing more and reading the Bible more and going to church more and getting involved in Christian service. He doesn't want it. Not what he wants. What he wants is a broken heart. And when we come to him with that broken heart, he responds. Oh, how he responds. As Jesus put it, blessed are those who mourn. And he was talking about mourning over sin. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You see, it's one of those radical reversals for which God is justly famous. When we leave behind all of this wreckage, when we make a mess out of our life and we face it and we draw near to God, he makes us even more useful. And he makes our worship even even more meaningful. A broken and a contrite heart, David said, you will not despise. Now, the last few verses look like an add-on. In fact, some people understand them that way. Verse 18 reads, In your good pleasure make Zion prosper. Actually, the word is beautiful. Make Zion beautiful. Zion was the city of God. Temple was located there in Zion. It's another word for Jerusalem. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous, that is, uh, appropriate, legitimate sacrifices. Whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your, on your altar. Uh, there are some who understand this as a later addition, uh, a scriptural addition, an addition by a prophet who wrote during the 6th century after the return from exile, who turned David's penitential psalm into a national psalm of repentance. In other words, uh, when Israel came back, they were aware of their sin of idolatry for which they had been taken into Babylon. When they came back, they prayed David's prayer as a national penitential prayer, and then uh, the, the prophet added at the end, Now, God, now that we're back in the land, restore to us our sovereignty. Rebuild the walls and uh, build the temple again and permit us to offer sacrifices. Now, that's possible. There are many who believe that that's the case, and there's nothing wrong with that from a biblical standpoint. But for myself, I don't think this was added in the 6th century. I think this was written in the 11th century when David wrote it or the early 10th century. David himself wrote these words because he recognized that his sin undermined the city. David was the king. He was the Messiah, the anointed one. And in those days, in that theocracy, as the king went, so went the people. And David realized that his sin had uh, disquieted the entire nation. You know what happened shortly afterward. You know, David paid terrible... Uh, the consequences of David's sin were terrible. He lost the child that uh, was the result of their uh, adulterous relationship. The baby died. Uh, his uh, son Amnon raped uh, his sister, Tamar, Amnon's sister, David's daughter, Tamar. 
Uh, she was emotionally scarred for the rest of her life. Absalom, in a fit of rage, killed Amnon and then had to run for his life. Uh, he eventually drew the entire nation into rebellion against David. David had to go into exile, had some of the most miserable experiences of his life. He had to pay terrible consequences for that. The city was shaken to its very core, spiritually and, and politically. I think that's what David is talking about. His sin undermined the nation. And now David is, is praying for restoration. Now, sin has that effect upon us and, and everything around us. We can't make light of it. And when we talk about forgiveness, we also have to talk about the severe mercy of God. He does have to judge sin. And there are always built-in consequences of sin. Always. I've mentioned before the story my father used to tell about the man who took his little boy out to the barn and drove a nail in the wall, gave him a claw hammer and said, pull it out. The little boy did. And he said, now pull the hole out. And, of course, he couldn't. The point that he made is that that sin marks us, sometimes eradicably. There's nothing we can do about the consequences of our sins. It's a very serious thing. We shouldn't take it lightly. But what David realizes is that God could take a ruin and make it something beautiful. He's praying that God would again make Zion beautiful. Just as we can pray that God would take the awful messes that we make out of our life and out of it construct something beautiful. I was sharing this psalm with the men in our Wednesday morning study, asking for some help in my understanding of it. And one of the men made the comment at the end when I read through verses 16 and 17 and 18 and, and told them my understanding of it. And he said, yeah, it's just like God. He takes garbage and makes something beautiful out of it. I still remember driving on the freeway to Berkeley between Palo Alto and Berkeley. And, and uh, there's a garbage dump out there and some artist had taken just just junk and had constructed out of it a some sort of statue. Really a beautiful thing. That's what God does. He takes these horrible, awful messes that we make. He takes the garbage in our life and out of it he constructs something beautiful. Now this passage, I think, tells us everything we need to know about sin and how to deal with it. To summarize, let me state it again in terms of four principles. Number one, we need to take responsibility for our sin. We cannot pass the buck to someone else. We are responsible. Secondly, we need to accept the enormity of it. Sin always hurts. It hurts us and it hurts others. And ultimately, it breaks God's heart. Third, we must receive forgiveness. We have no right to call unclean what God has called clean. God made that point to Peter when he told him to eat certain animals that he was forbidden to eat as a Jew. Peter said, I've never eaten anything unclean. God says, don't call unclean what I've called clean. So if God says you're clean, you're clean. You have to trust him for that, even though you don't feel it, even though your memories are, are injured. If God calls you clean, you're clean. Psalm 103 puts it, As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Our sins are an infinite distance from God. As Micah puts it, he has buried them in the deepest sea. And then as Ray Stedman used to say, he put up a little sign there that says, No fishing allowed. 
can't go back and recover those sins. So we need to take responsibility for them. We need to accept the enormity of our sin. We need to receive forgiveness for sin. And then finally, frankly, we need to make the most of them. Because sin does not mean that we are disqualified and unuseful. It can become the means by which we become an even more effective servant in God's hands. And sin repented of can be the means by which we draw near to God and he makes us more tranquil, more gentle, more majestic, stronger individual. Shall we pray? I would like to read for you as you as you pray uh, Charlotte Elliott's words. We're accustomed to singing them in the song just as I am. We sing them as a invitational song when people are asked to receive Christ. But uh, this poem is actually written not for non-Christians, but for Christians, to invite them, to invite those that are sinful and suffering uh, to come to the Lord for forgiveness, cleansing, and restoration. So as I read these words, will you make them your own? Just as I am, without one plea, but that your blood was shed for me, and that you bid me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am, and waiting not to rid my soul of one dark blot, to thee whose blood can cleanse each spot, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am, though tossed about with many a conflict, many a doubt, fightings and fears within, without, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am, poor, wretched, blind, sight, riches, healing of the mind, yea, all I need in thee to find, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am, you will receive, will welcome, pardon, cleanse, relieve. Because your promise, I believe. O Lamb of God, I come. Lord, we are so overwhelmed by your uncanny love. We do not know love like that here. We've never experienced love without strings attached. But yours is so freely given, based upon your word, based upon your character. Thank you for your compassion for us. Teach us, Lord, to not cover up our sin, but to face it, put it away, and experience again the joy of your salvation. Thank you for this reminder this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.